0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Sorry, I forgot to check what page number that is in the white Bible, but if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a white paperback Bible in one of the chairs in front of you to the left or the right uh, you can grab that and open up to Second Kings, kind of in the middle of the Bible. Chapter 21 is where we are today. Um, as many of you know, <clears throat> there is a, uh, a big game tonight <clears throat> called the Super Bowl. Some of you, I know, don't care, and that's okay. Okay. Um, but there's something very interesting about this particular Super Bowl, and that is that there is a team playing in the Super Bowl called the New England Patriots, who some of you would consider sacrilege that I'm even mentioning that team in a sense. In a, in a, in a, uh, particularly here in central Indiana, there's some strong dislike of the New England Patriots, but you know what, uh, I count myself among them actually, but I, I have to acknowledge that there is something very impressive about what the New England Patriots have accomplished. This will be their 11th Super Bowl appearance. (laughs) We have some New Englanders here with us, so. 11 Super Bowl appearances. That's amazing. I mean, whether you like the Patriots or not, you have to admit that is an impressive accomplishment, particularly when there are some teams who have never been to a Super Bowl, not even once and others struggle to get there more than one or two times, and here are the Patriots for the 11th time. Now, what is the reason for that? How have they been able to accomplish that? And a lot of people have a, a lot of different ideas about that, but a common response is that it has something to do with leadership. Leadership in the front office of the New England Patriots organization, leadership among the coaching staff, leadership in the position of quarterback, Forbes magazine has even written about this. What people can learn about leadership from the New England Patriots. And I think all of us can identify with this. We, we know that uh, leadership can have a powerful impact on us. Right? We all know the benefit of working or living under good leadership and the difficulties of working and living under bad leadership. And that applies to um, a situation in a nation, given the leaders that a nation has, it has to do, again, with sports teams, and it has to do with churches as well. Churches sometimes go well or not so well depending on those who lead. And as a general rule, as leaders go, so goes the people. And very rarely do people aspire to exceed the example set forth for them by their leaders. It is hard to overestimate the importance of leadership in any organization. And today we're going to think a little bit about that because... This past Monday at our annual meeting, our annual congregational meeting of this local congregation, we elected some new elders and deacons, three new elders and two new deacons. And a little bit later after this message, they're going to take vows, they're gonna promise to serve this church and you, the members of this church, are gonna promise to respond to them. But before that, we're gonna see what the Word of God has to say about leadership, particularly through the example set forth by a guy named Manasseh and Manasseh happens to be one of the worst leaders that you could ever imagine and sometimes it's useful to look at bad examples so that we can take lessons from that about good examples and a good way to lead and so that's what we're gonna do today we are just gonna stick with our Route 66 sermon series what we're doing is going through the entire Bible one sermon per Bible book Started at Genesis, we're going to work our way all the way to Revelation, and here we are in the book of 2 Kings. Of course, we did 1 Kings last week. Um, so what do we know about the book of 2 Kings? Very similar to 1 Kings. We're not sure uh, about who actually wrote this, other than it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the human instrument, we're not sure. Written sometime after 561 BC, before the time of Christ, significant events, Uh, The ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, Elisha the successor to Elijah. Uh, The ministry of some significant kings, Jehu, Hezekiah, Josiah, and the exile of both the nations of Israel and Judah. And the theme continues to be godly and ungodly kingship or leadership we might say. And in particular, the question that is raised, which is how is it that God's gonna fulfill his covenantal promises when the kings of Israel proved to be so disappointing? So, uh, 2 Kings 21, the story of Manasseh. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna read verses one through 18. Second Kings 21, verse one. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he said in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said to his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Jacob, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sins that he committed are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon his son, reigned in his place. God, we pray by your spirit, visit us now and open our eyes and open our hearts to behold the truth and goodness and richness and wisdom of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You'll have to be patient with me, I'm uh, getting over a cold here, so I'm struggling a little bit with my throat, so pray that the Lord would sustain me through this message. All right, King Manasseh, what can we learn about leadership from this man? First of all, let's look at the quality of this man's leadership. Who was Manasseh? Well, we, a, little, a little bit of chapter 21, he was 12 years old when he began to reign, tells us, and he reigned for 55 years. That's significant because this is the longest of any king in Judah, 55 years. He's the most evil king in Judah. So why is that? Um, That's locked up, I guess, in the mysteries of God's providence, Uh, but that's what the text tells us. Uh, Hard to imagine somebody reigning at 12 years old. Many commentators, scholars think perhaps Manasseh co-reigned with his father Hezekiah for maybe about 10 years before he started reigning on his own. But we do know that Manasseh was the son of this king named Hezekiah who was a, a very good king. Hezekiah a godly king, a wonderful king, a great king that probably many of you know about. And then Manasseh comes along his son and things completely change. I mean, how quickly sometimes things can change from just one generation to another. Godly leaders can um, have all of their progress undone through their successor, which could be an evil leader as we see here with Manasseh. But we see a summary here in verse two of Manasseh's leadership, and this is what happens throughout the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles two, is we get just these summaries these very blunt summaries of whether these kings were good or bad. And so in verse 2, we find out about Manasseh. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's repeated a couple of other times in this chapter. Manasseh is an evil king, a wicked king. So what is it that made him so wicked? We all maybe have different ideas about what constitutes wickedness and evil. And this passage tells us exactly what made Manasseh so Wicked. The first is his idolatry, described in verses 3 through 5. Manasseh comes in and he rebuilds the high places, it says in verse 3, that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Hezekiah recognized the wickedness of idolatry and saw all these idols. He took them down. He destroyed them, something that very few kings were willing to do. Hezekiah did it. Manasseh comes in and builds them up again. The altars for Baal and Asherah pole is also, Asherah was the uh, fertility god. And uh, we also see that Manasseh worshiped the uh, hosts, verse five, to all the hosts of heaven. That is the, the stars and the planets and the sun, something very explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. And what's making this so egregious and so wicked and so particularly disturbing is not only the fact that Manasseh has undone the reforms that Hezekiah, his father, had instituted, but we see where these idols are being erected. Look at verse four. He built altars, look at that, in the house of the Lord. Asherah poles, altars to Baal, in God's house, in the temple, in this place where um, God has said in verse four the place where in Jerusalem will I put my name. In other words, this is the one place in the world where the one true God should be worshipped and lifted up and exalted, in the temple of God. This is the place where the nations can come and know the one true God. It's the only place in the world where this is going to happen. And yet it's in that place that Manasseh comes and erects these false gods. Here's here's one good uh, trait of a good leader. A good leader is one in the church anyway a good leader is one who is not easily taken by these very popular ideas that all religions go to heaven that every religion is equally legitimate that just as long as we're sincere no matter what path we choose to take we're all going to reach the same god that might have been something that manasseh had in mind bringing in all of these false gods He had a very pluralistic way of looking at the world. We all worship in different ways. Let's bring them all into the house of God. And God says, that's wicked. That's evil. So we see the idolatry of Manasseh. But we also see what makes him so wicked is his occultic practices. In verse 6, he used fortune-telling And omens, fortune-telling, you know, telling what's going to happen. happen, I don't know if they had a crystal ball or exactly how that was done at the time, but we have people that still try to do this, predicting the future for people, relying on omens, that is, events, incidents that happen in people's lives, and the attempt is to try to interpret what has happened as a way of pointing forward to what might be happening in the future. Consulting um, mediums and with wizards, another uh, translation for wizards is necromancers, that's those who are trying to communicate with the dead. These are all occultic practices that some people even today still find kind of interesting and uh, appealing, but the scripture's very clear in God's law that no Christian should be practicing these kinds of things, much less leaders of God's people, and that's what Manasseh had fallen into. But then we have a third thing that is used to describe the wickedness of Manasseh, and that is he is guilty of the shedding of innocent blood. And you'll see that in verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly how he did that or in what form that We might imagine that those who opposed Manasseh and challenged him, perhaps they uh, met with Manasseh's sword. Perhaps he executed those who opposed him. Uh, We don't know, but we do have one example that this might be referring to going again back to verse 6. I skipped over this short phrase at the start of the verse. He burned his son as an offering. He took his son, we don't know how old his son was his own son and laid him on some kind of an altar or a pyre of some sort and burned him to death as a sacrifice to his gods. This was a pagan practice. The idea is this is how I'm gonna show how passionate I am and how devoted I am to my God. I'm so devoted that I'll even give up my son or my daughter in this way. A frequent pagan practice And now it's being practiced in Judah among God's people. A terrifying thing, a horrifying thing. Under the wrong kinds of leadership, what we're learning here, the most wicked, horrible atrocities can happen. And I want to add that we are seeing some of that actually occurring in our own nation. If you've been watching the news here lately and you've been hearing about different legislation that is being offered up on the subject of abortion so that now in some states and actually this has been the case for a while but uh, a baby can be aborted up until the mother's due date I mean if a c-section would happen before that time and the child was taken up he would be perfectly viable but if that child is in the womb the child can be killed according to what many of the leaders in our country have requested and desired. And yes, there is this phrase that this happens only when the mother's health is at risk. That's true, that's what it says, except that that phrase, mother's health, has been defined as anything related to the emotional or psychological state of the woman, can even relate to the woman's age. So there's um, just, a wide open number of opportunities for abortion to happen up until the due date. I don't think it's a stretch to say that abortion is the shedding of innocent blood. The circumstances are different here. Yeah, I'm not saying that people who have abortions are offering them up to bail, but it is the shedding of innocent blood. I came across this this week, a quote from John Calvin said this back in the 16th century if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field because a man's house is his place and most secure refuge that should say it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light in the place where it is supposed to be the safest is the place where it is very dangerous in some places in this country and in other places in the world and a lot of it has to do with, with leaders and the legislations that, that they have put, put forth. A good leader, a godly leader defends and protects the sanctity of life. So we see that Manasseh apparently did not share that view and in his wickedness even sacrificed his son on the fire. So secondly, let's look at this, the consequences of his leadership, the consequences of Manasseh's wicked leadership. I need to give some historical perspective here, okay, in order to understand this. Again, this is Route 66. I'm trying to tell the story of the entire Bible and sometimes the story gets a little complicated and we're kind of deep in the weeds now here in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. So let me explain this to you. Um, Remember, we've talked about the beginning of the monarchy in Israel, so Saul was the first king, David was the next king, Solomon was the third king, and we've looked at each of those men and their, their reigns. After Solomon, all those three men were kings of Israel, but after Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided, there was a split, and so the nation got divided into Israel, the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, the capital, Samaria. I don't know if you can read that out there, but there's a little star there, the capital of Samaria. And then the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah, capital, Jerusalem. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, perhaps you've been a little bit confused because you've seen these terms. You've seen Israel, Judah, Samaria, Jerusalem. You see all these words being mentioned. What is this all referring to? Well, it's all referring to the people of God in a broad sense, but it's the people of God who politically have been divided up into these two kingdoms. But each of these kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, has had their own kings. And so... Uh, And very often they have been at war with each other. So here's a list of the kings of Israel on the north and the kings of Judah on the south. So you can see a number of kings over a great number of years. And um, you'll notice here that the dark gray spaces, those are the um, kings who have been considered good. The passages will say, This king did good as opposed to doing evil. So the dark gray are good. So we got Asa and Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Among all these kings in Israel and all these kings of Judah, there's four who were good. (laughs) Now you'll notice kind of some... Um, a medium shade of gray I don't know again how well you can tell that out there but this is kind of like a medium shade here and here as well. Those were kings who were kind of good and bad but still a significant amount of bad in their reigns but the rest of them are all considered to be evil and wicked kings and so um, Manasseh uh, you'll notice is right here. So this is Hezekiah his father, Manasseh comes along, no gray for Manasseh because he is a wicked king, but you'll see that there's a few kings to come afterward um, before this portion or this era of Israel's history ends, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, so, I mean, one thing we have to notice here is the unbelievable patience of God as he has just waited and, and, and longed for the repentance of these kings and these people. I mean, God could have... Um, uh, brought judgment upon the house of Israel or, or Judah on many occasions through here, but he is a patient God thank thank God, right for that I mean he is patient with us, even in our stubbornness, in our waywardness and, and this is a demonstration of that. but we notice here that there are consequences nonetheless for the rebellion and wickedness of these kings and so if you look at verse eleven, Notice it says, because Manasseh, king of Judah, had committed these abominations, because, that brings to mind a consequence, because they did this, something is going to happen. And so there's a list, again, of Manasseh's um, wickedness, his abominations, and because he's done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, who were before him. Now, who are the Amorites? The Amorites were a pagan group of people who were in the promised land before Israel got there. Remember the story? Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were brought out of Egypt. God said, I'm gonna give you a land. We went through the book of Numbers as Israel was traveling and journeying to the promised land. They finally got to the promised land and they displaced the nations in that promised land, not because of some racial issue, but because those nations were wicked defiant of God, and doing things like sacrificing their sons and daughters to their gods. And so God said, you're gonna displace these people. The Amorites were one of those people. So they were engaged in these wicked practices, they were displaced, Israel comes in, settles in the land, and now, many years later, what God is saying here in verse 11 is, Judah, okay, southern kingdom, Judah, you're even worse than the Amorites were. These people who practice these horrible, wicked things. God is saying, my intent was that you would come into that land and you would be my people and you would worship me and you would live a righteous and holy life and you would be a light to the nations. And now what's happening? You're worse than the people who were there before you. And so God says, there's going to be consequences for that. And so God's response is, listed here in verse 12 and 13 and 14. God says, therefore, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah, Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, the capital, such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That's just kind of a way of saying it's going to send a shiver down your spine. What I'm about to do, God says. It's going to be a chilling and astonishing thing. What I'm gonna do, verse 13, I'll stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. Ahab was one of the worst kings of Israel. And uh, a plumb line was just simply like a measuring tool, particularly that you would use when you're building a wall or building a structure. And so God is saying, I'm gonna take this plumb line, this measuring tool, and I'm gonna use it to condemn the house of Judah. Because this is a house that needs to be brought down. Just like when city officials go out and they see blight, and they see there's a house. It's dilapidated. It's not even habitable anymore. We need to bulldoze it, and that's what God is saying here. I'm going to bring you down, Judah, and then he uses one more metaphor in verse 13. End of verse 13, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. Just like you get a bowl of soup or something and you eat and then there's some food left in there and you put it in the dishwasher and it's wiped clean and it comes out brand new. You never knew there was anything in it. And God says, this is what I'm going to do to you, Jerusalem. I'm going to wipe you clean, Judah. That's what my judgment is going to look at. But how is this going to happen? What is it going to look like? What is this judgment going to look like? It's not that God's going to exterminate all these people or kill them. What he's going to do is he's going to exile them. That's the way his judgment works in this case. He's going to kick them out of the land. The idea is this, if you're not going to live in the land like I wanted you to, then you don't have a right to occupy it anymore. And if you're not going to be a light to the nations from this land, you will be a slave to the nations, Judah. And that's what is described in verse 14. I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Who are their enemies? The enemy of Judah was the nation of Babylon. And so that's what God is saying here. I'm gonna exile you to Babylon. You're gonna be taken out of your land and taken to another place. And so we see that exile happens at the very end of that list, the left column and the right column, Israel and Judah, you notice that um, each list ended, the list of kings, and when those lists ended, that's when both nations were exiled. And so Israel was exiled to Assyria in 722, it's described in 2 Kings 17.6, Judah exiled to Babylon in 586 BC, 2 Kings 25.21. Okay, so that's a lot of historical detail. You'll need to remember that, because as we get into the prophets, we're going to uh, learn a lot about uh, what God says to Israel and what God says to Judah, and um, so that'll help you kind of understand that. But one thing we learn from this is that God will judge wicked rulers. Those who rule wickedly will not get away with it. Rulers of nations or rulers in churches, God will bring them down. That's the consequences of bad leadership is the judgment of God. All right? Now lastly, the example of Manasseh's leadership. So this (coughs) will get us back to the the subject of leadership. There's two verses here that I think every leader should pay very close attention to. And if you're out there thinking, well I'm not getting installed as elder or deacon today, this doesn't really apply to me. Actually a lot of you are in various leadership positions. I know a lot of you lead ministries. If you're a parent, you're in a leadership position. If you're a teacher, you're in a leadership position. So um, many of us are in leadership positions, but look what it says in verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites who were before him and has made Judah also to sin. He made Judah to sin with his idols. Verse 16, this same idea is repeated. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides the sin that he made Judah to sin. Now, what does that mean? mean? I mean, it certainly doesn't mean that Manasseh forced the people to sin, that he commanded them to sin, that he put a gun to their heads and told them if they didn't sin that he would kill them. That's not what this is talking about. And it certainly doesn't mean that the people aren't responsible for their sins. But what it seems to suggest is that because of the example that Manasseh set, and because of his position as a leader, and because people tend to follow the example set forth by their leaders, that Manasseh is to some degree responsible for the sins of his people because he didn't pursue a righteous example. You know, a lot of times parents are, are told, and it's true, when you teach your children, remember that it's more what is caught than what is taught and more what you do than what you say, right? We, we hear that a lot, and that's kind of the principle at work here. The people caught what Manasseh was about. And they began to form their lives around the example of their leader. And Manasseh was held responsible. So, um, a challenge and a warning to all of us who are leaders. And I'm a leader, so this is a sermon to myself as well. <laughs> you know, the scripture says, don't let many become teachers because the standard for leaders is, is higher. And um, that's what we're learning here. So, how can leaders avoid this? Just three quick things. Three quick things. How can leaders avoid setting a bad example? Listen to God's word. Listen to God's word, give yourself to God's word. Look at verse eight. Verse eight, Manasseh is reminded of what God had said, that God had commanded them to, um, uh, according to the law that the servant Moses had commanded them, God is reminding Manasseh about God's word that had come to them, but then in verse nine, they did not listen, it says, and Manasseh led them astray they stopped listening to God's word. They got interested in other things. Here's the sure first step toward a leader failing and becoming wicked is you stop, start losing interest in God's word. You start thinking that there's something more wise, more relevant, more contemporary, more interesting, more powerful, and you begin to leave the word behind and you go on to other things. That's the beginning of the end for you, leader. Listen to God's word. Stay in tune with God's word. Commit yourself to God's word, reading it, loving it, memorizing it, treasuring it, sharing it, teaching it. The second thing resist worldliness. Again, verse 2 kind of repeats what we've already talked about a moment ago, but verse 2 He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations. Apparently what Manasseh wanted was to be like the nations. He didn't want to be different. He didn't want to be distinct. He wanted the acceptance of the world. Here's another step that a leader in the church can take to wickedness, and that is to model your ministry around what the world wants. To make decisions and do things, to get the applause of the world and the attention of the world so that the world will think you're not so weird and not so strange. As a Christian, That's a sure step toward wickedness. Avoid worldliness. The task of the church is not to earn the applause of the world, but to be a light to the world. We are not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's especially true for leaders. The last thing is to humble yourselves, leaders. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. This story actually has a happy ending, Manasseh. We don't see it in 2 Kings, but if you go to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles gives us another account of Manasseh's life. And look at this. Look what happens in Manasseh's life. When he, that's referring to Manasseh, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord and humbled himself greatly before the Lord of his fathers. Isn't that unbelievable? The man guilty of all of this wickedness humbled himself. He prayed to God, and then God was moved. Even in spite of all the wickedness he did, God was moved because the man humbled himself, brought his entreaty, heard his plea, brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh became a believer. Manasseh repented He confessed his sins and was brought to know the one true living God. Friends, if Manasseh can be forgiven of his sins, you can too. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what shame you're carrying, no matter what sin is bothering you, no matter how deep you've been in it, no matter how unspeakable it is, God will forgive you if you humble yourself and turn to him and ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's in all of this complication, that's really probably the most important and profound thing that needs to come out of the text, a very simple thing. Humble yourselves and turn to God, and he will forgive you, and that is particularly important for leaders. All of us as leaders know what it's like to make mistakes, to, to not measure up, to, to have blind spots, to do things that are foolish. We know that. We all share that. We're all gonna do that and the elders and deacons who are coming forward will make mistakes. But let me just say to you, follow Manasseh's example, humble yourself and go to the Lord and he will forgive. And the good news in the end is that we don't have to worry about being led by a king like Manasseh because today in the new covenant we are led by a king named Jesus. The king of kings who in every place where Manasseh did wrong, Jesus did wrong what was right and what was gracious in giving his life and raising from the dead and promising now that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so all Christians and all leaders, keep your eyes fixed on him who is the author and finisher of your faith.